Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. Denise and I are getting ready for summer, as I'm sure you all are too, and we've just been talking about some fun series that we would like to bring to you all. One of the series we're going to be discussing this summer is different healing modalities that the empath can try. So we're going to be having some guests on talking about all sorts of things from cranial sacral work and cupping to Reiki and acupuncture. But we're also going to be starting a series on the narcissist and the empath. We did an episode on the narcissist way back in the beginning when we started the show, but our audio was kind of off in that episode. So we've always wanted to redo that show. And what we're going to do now is bring it more into a series type of format. So today we're going to be talking about the narcissist, how to identify the narcissist, how to know if there's a narcissist in your life. And then in part two, we're going to be talking about the empath and the narcissist. Why are those two people often connected? Why do they draw each other like a magnet? And then we're going to be moving into setting boundaries, healing from the narcissist, tips and techniques for either walking away from the narcissist or learning to live healthily with the narcissist. So I thought, Denise, that we could just start with some general definitions of narcissism. Does that sound okay to you? That sounds great. That okay. That sounds really great. And I think it's, this is, we're so inundated right now with people talking about narcissists, how to identify them. So this is just kind of our spin on the way we've experienced it. And also, um, I think as, even though empaths is the second half of the show, we have a little bit different perspective because it does hit us so closely to home. So being able to see these tendencies in people can be a really helpful tool. Yes, I agree. So we also, I just want to start by saying Denise and I are not therapists, psychologists, social workers. <laughs> so we are simply sharing information that we have researched. That's it. And sharing experiences that we've had or seen with narcissists as well. The narcissistic personality disorder spectrum ranges greatly as most spectrums do. So you could have someone who's really low on the narcissist spectrum, who's just overly confident, a little arrogant to all the way to the other side, which is bordering on like sociopath and psychopathic behavior. So just please know that anything we talk about in these descriptions of what a narcissist is can have big ranges. In general though, they will have a grandiose sense of themselves. They tend to lie easily. They often act arrogant and smarter than others. And they see people only in terms of what others can do for them. So if you can't provide anything for them in return, such as admiration or help, assistance, networking, connections, they won't have much use for you. They do need to be in control of every situation. They tend to have extremely low levels of empathy. They really can't see anybody outside of themselves and their own needs. If they need you and they still are getting a narcissistic supply from you, they can exhibit traits of empathy, but only because it's affecting them. Let's say, for example, you have a narcissistic boss and you are doing almost all of the work for a big project that you guys are getting ready to present in a month, and then you get sick with the flu. The narcissistic boss may act very empathetic towards you. I hope you get better. Is there anything you need? And you're thinking, wow, they are kind of nice. Maybe they aren't such a bad boss. Maybe it's me. But the minute that project is launched and they take all the credit and then you get sick again, they're not going to be there for you. So they show empathy only in terms of how it helps them or serves their needs. But it's really false empathy. They tend to be very shallow. And all of this is a mask to hide their true fear and brokenness. And I do think it's important to remember at the heart of the narcissist is not someone who's confident, arrogant, and egotistical. At their core, they are terrified little children. They're like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum all the time. They haven't emotionally progressed past that narcissistic stage that they exist in now. They tend to, they love to brag, and oftentimes they will exaggerate their successes or 
flat out lie about their successes. They tend to be very self-centered and smug. They do enjoy shaming others. And this, we're going to talk about the types of narcissists in a little bit. So if you have a very overt narcissist who wears it openly, they will shame you publicly. But if you have a covert narcissist who likes to be more passive aggressive about their narcissistic ways, they will shame you in hidden ways. And, and I think sometimes, Denise, that can be almost more damaging. I think very much so because it will, it's a lot similar to the covert emotional abuse stuff that I never said that. Why would you think that? The things that get in your head, the mind game kind of stuff, so that you lose your bearings or you lose your sense of self. Uh, with everything that you're saying, it's another classic thing for narcissists is they'll get bored if the conversation isn't all about them. They'll want to redirect the attention to themselves or they have a hard time sharing the spotlight. And it can be so, for a lot of us, and, and I think even as highly sensitive people, we may not even see that coming. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, somehow that got diverted back to them. People aren't so blatantly obvious with it all the time. But that classic narcissism, everything that you've been saying is so spot on. Narcissists tend to employ dualistic black and white thinking. They judge things easily, quickly, and often, and their judgments are always right in their minds. They will often put you down with jokes and then hide it by saying, I was only teasing. Where's your sense of humor? I think that's one of my most, my, my biggest pet peeves with the narcissist. You know, Denise, when people will, like, I don't think jokes at someone else's expense is ever funny. No. I mean, unless it's, it's a, an old joke shared or if it's a dear friend. I mean, I don't think being cruel is ever a good choice. No. I agree. They don't either. They um, tend to be emotionally detached. They enjoy gaslighting. They make you distrust your reality with covert manipulation. So we should probably define gaslighting real quick in case people haven't heard of that term. It comes from an old Alfred Hitchcock movie about a man who was trying to make his wife feel crazy, and he would turn down the gaslight in their house. And she would say, yeah, I think the lights are going down. There's, they seem dimmer. And he would say, no, no, they're not. And it was all in this covert plan to make her feel as though she was slowly going insane. And so now therapists use that term gaslighting to describe any narcissist who is trying to manipulate someone into doubting themselves. The narcissist also needs instant gratification. So if they text you or phone you, they will get mad if you don't respond right away. They get their feelings hurt easily, and they often move from hobby to hobby or passion to passion or person to person. So you might have a narcissist in your life who suddenly is all about scuba diving. They get certified, they go scuba diving, they buy all the equipment, they go on these big trips, and then suddenly the next year, they're not into scuba diving anymore. And that's just another example of their need for instant gratification. They are often sexually promiscuous, not always, but the seductive narcissist, which we'll get to in a minute, tends to be sexually promiscuous. They tend to be drama kings and queens. They enjoy playing the victim. They don't like harmony. They're not after peace. They're not looking for everything to be honky-dory. They enjoy the drama. They feed off of it. They are very controlling. They always need to be in charge. And here's the thing, though. You know, we always will hear those, like that famous study that was done that showed, I think it was 60% of CEOs scored really high on the narcissistic personality test. So we often think of narcissists as being CEOs and bosses of these big places and really important politicians or leaders. That's not always the case. Narcissists don't care what they're in charge of as long as they're in charge. So their kingdom or queendom can be a small family or a little tiny department in a company or even just a small group of friends. It doesn't matter to them. They just need to be in charge of whatever is constituting their world. It covers a lot of information. It really does. And it exemplifies what a wide range narcissism can cover. 
It is a wide range, and I think that's what can get tricky because it's a lot of times people will look at certain individuals in their life and think, are you a narcissist or not? And then they start to doubt themselves. So I think everybody can exhibit one or two of these tendencies. We're not saying if you like to, I mean, look, we all like to brag about our kids from time to time. That doesn't mean you're a narcissist. We all get our feelings hurt easily. That doesn't mean you're a narcissist. It's if you have a majority of these characteristics, then you might know a narcissist. They also tend to have fantasies of being more successful than they really are. And they can be really good at selling that fantasy and making you believe it as well. They believe they are special and they often think they can only be around other special people. They need a lot of admiration. A lot. They need compliments constantly. And when I was making these notes, Denise, it reminded me of one of my favorite scenes from the Golden Girls. Mm -hmm. When Blanche Devereaux gets all dressed up to go out on this date and she says, girls, how do I look? And her friend Rose says, you look really nice. And she says, nice? Nice. And she gets all upset that that's the only compliment she gets. So then Dorothy turns to her and says, Blanche, no woman before and no woman since will ever look as magnificent as you look now. <laughs> and Blanche says, thank you, Dorothy. Like they need that type of compliment, like just kind of over the top admiration. It's never enough with them. Mm -hmm. They also have a lot of envy for other people and things. They really often believe that things will make them happy. And so money can be a big deal for the narcissist. They do not respect boundaries. If you set a boundary with a narcissist, they will see that as a challenge, like a line drawn in the sand, not as something they need to respect and pay attention to. They will act charming as they're trying to learn your fears and insecurities, and then they'll use these to put you down later on. They will often reveal personal and often fake things about themselves early on in the relationship as a ruse to get you to share and then use this against you. So be aware of relationships that very quickly get into you're my best friend let's be boyfriend and girlfriend, or let's get married. You know, those relationships that really quickly move from getting to know each other to intimate, bonded together, that's often an indication of a narcissist. They act as if they know you better than you know yourself. Now, sometimes this can feel comforting, like, oh, they know me, they know everything about me, that's so nice, we share so much. But that's, again, remember with narcissists, so much of what they're projecting is false. And so it's not that they know you because they love you and care for you. It's more that they're studying you because you are just a thing to them that they can manipulate and use. So they don't truly know you better than you know yourself, but they will often say this to make you doubt yourself. They forget promises they made, and then they claim they never made that promise. And they will always, always, always do what they want. They will do what they want to do when they want to do it without any regard for you and other people. Their needs come first always. And I think that can be a really painful revelation sometimes, especially for the empath who is very foreign to this concept of putting themselves first. Also, if it's someone that's very near and dear to you in your life, if it's a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a child, a dear friend, and to when it's similar to if you've been around a lot of people with addiction issues and you step away from that world and then all of a sudden you start seeing those tendencies in so many people. I think narcissism is very similar to that. I do too. I do too. Sometimes it can feel like waking up from a dream almost when you start to realize it. Right. I remember when I started studying narcissists, it was like someone had given me powerful tools. Because once you can recognize the narcissist, that does disarm them. You know, there's that well-known book, Disarming the Narcissist. And one of the first steps in disarming the narcissist is recognizing them for what they are. That's why knowledge is power. They don't want you to know they are a narcissist. 
Okay, so there are two main types of narcissists. There's the covert and the overt narcissist. The covert narcissist is often harder to pinpoint. They tend to be the sneaky snake in the grass type. They appear kind and loving, but it's just all pretend to gain power and control. They're very passive aggressive. They often don't even know they're a narcissist. They're consumed with fear and insecurity. So you see this a lot in parents with children. A lot of parents who are dysfunctional can be covert narcissists, and they might not even be aware of it themselves. But they can't see their children as anything separate from themselves. And they tend to be very passive-aggressive with their children and very controlling and project their dreams and wishes and hopes onto their kids in a covert way. So we'll talk more about that when we get to the narcissistic parent. Overt narcissists are much easier to spot. They're loud, outspoken, they're attention-seeking, dramatic. We've all, these, those are the easy ones. Those are the ones that walk into a room like, hey, I'm here, let's get the party started. But the covert one can be a little trickier. And I think it's because they don't even know that they're narcissists. Haven't you known people like that who just have no sense of who they are in a, in a relationship? And if you ask, if you brought these tendencies to their attention, they would deny it very, very strongly. Wholeheartedly. Yeah, exactly. So there's, within that frame of overt and covert, you have the cerebral narcissist. This is the one I've come across a lot in academia. They use their intellect to control, manipulate, and put you down. They need to feel smarter than everyone. They tend to be cynical and plotting. They have a planning, plotting type of behavior where they're always thinking and they're always trying to be one step ahead of you. These are often covert narcissists. Have you known a cerebral narcissist? Yes, and they'll try, if you say something, they'll either have to one-up you on it or almost be like a fact checker or where did you get that information? From my base of knowledge, I know that this is the case and they'll, they'll bring it back to themselves and how much more they know about it than anyone else. So yes, I have. And it's unsettling if you're an intelligent person, but maybe not as self-confident or secure to put your own thoughts and ideas out there. Right. There's the seductive narcissist. This is the one who uses praise and compliments to get the same in return. They will inflate your ego to get you to do things for them. They can use sex or seduction as a form of control, and they tend to run very hot and cold. They'll put you on a pedestal, but once they're done with you, they will knock you off that pedestal. They're very vain. They need to feel better looking than everyone else. They tend to be youth-oriented. And this kind of narcissist can be overt or covert. Mm -hmm. There's also the um, martyred narcissist. And I, this is definitely an example of a covert narcissist. The martyred narcissist is the one who always plays the victim. It's always about them, but they are always the victim of a situation. And they can take anything that they have done wrong and flip it around to make themselves look the victim. This is a true energy vampire, in my opinion, don't you think? I agree, yes. Then you have the malignant narcissist, and this is the most dangerous type of narcissist. They often fall more to the sociopathic, psychopathic tendency of the spectrum. The malignant narcissist does not feel remorse. They will do and say anything to destroy their victim. They can be covert or overt, but they're very vengeful. And this one can be, this is the type where if you have you ever seen those stories on the news where you know a couple's going through a divorce and one parent will just make up an outrageous lie about the other parent of maybe abuse claims or something like that that would be an example of a malignant narcissist or a malignant boss example maybe you betrayed them in some way that they saw as betrayal and they will start to spread horrible lies and rumors about you through the office or even try to get you fired. So the malignant narcissist can be very dangerous. There's the bullying narcissist. They enjoy humiliating others. They use contempt to make people feel like losers. They enjoy belittling and mocking others. These types of people will mistreat waitstaff, for example. They're often prejudiced and racist. 
excellent at gaslighting, and they will threaten people when they don't get their way. So the malignant and the bullying nar narcissist, I think, are the most dangerous. I agree. The descriptions really help delineate how expansive this is. Right. And, you know, and you can't, like, someone can have other personality disorders in addition to narcissism. So I think they even took narcissism off the personality disorder, DVSM, whatever that thing is called. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that. Hopefully a psychologist will email me and correct me. But you can have, for example, borderline personality disorder and narcissistic tendencies. So it's just important to know that sometimes narcissism will overlap with other things. And my concern is that because this is a very public, mainstream word and concept, and there's so much information that people will be mislabeled as a narcissist by someone, or they may be seen as a narcissist. You made an excellent point earlier when you said, if you have some, we all have some of these tendencies. We all, and as we're, you were reading and as you were talking and discussing this, I was thinking, you can picture people in your mind that have these certain tendencies and you think, oh, is it narcissism or is it just one aspect of their personality? And that, do you agree with that? That as when something becomes so public and out there that we can over-identify people with that label? Yes, yes, I do. But I do think more people are waking up to the fact that narcissism is either on the rise or just seems to be being uncovered right now. What popped into my head is nature nurture is, you know, that common, or do people come because of the way their genetic makeup and their, all of that, or is it the way that they're nurtured and brought up? Personally, I think it's a balance of both. It's just my own personal aside on that. And I do think that some people may come with more narcissistic tendencies and someone else may learn those from either their, their upbringing or the conditions in their life. Or does, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do. Well, speaking of their upbringing, let's talk about narcissistic parents and adult children. Um, we don't have a lot of time in this episode to go into growing up with a narcissistic parent. That would be a whole nother episode that, that we should do. But as if you have a narcissistic parent and you're an adult, this can be really, really tricky because what the narcissistic parent does is they will create a false sense of codependency. They don't really want the child, the adult child, to be independent from the parent. And that can be really hard to break free from. They have a you owe me type of parenting style. So they might remind you frequently of all the things they did for you when you were growing up. And they tend to always have this I know better than you mantra simply because they're older or have lived longer when it's really not even true at all. They treat their adult children like children. And they also, narcissistic parents are really good at labeling each member of the family. And they insist that members stay true to this label. So you might be the loyal one or the rebel or the smart one or the black sheep but narcissistic parents really do enjoy labeling everyone in the family and they will insist when everyone is together that they fall back into those labels. They enjoy projecting an illusion of perfectionism and the perfect family. So they care a lot about what strangers think. They might be mean as anything to you behind closed doors, but when you're at church or out in public, Everyone looks perfect. Everyone behaves perfectly. And so much of the family unit's time and energy will be invested in keeping up this fake persona. The narcissistic parent of the adult child likes to control aspects of your life. A really good example of this is the mom who says, holidays will always be at my house. Even after you get married or start your own family, they won't understand that you have in-laws now or other needs, or maybe you just want to go on vacation for one holiday they will draw very firm lines in the sand. And if you agree to them, great, everything's honky-dory. If you don't agree with their lines drawn in the sand, then you're out. And they will often enlist other members of the family to help attack you. This is called triangling, where they will have one, usually it's another sibling, who they will 
favor or constantly pull to their side. And they will use this triangling mode to make you feel on the outs, isolated, secluded, unloved. And that's a really good technique to pull adult children back into this web. They will often compare you as well to either other siblings or close relatives with the overt or covert message of you will never be good enough. So you might hear from one of your narcissistic parents, why can't you be more like, or, you know, Jane always calls her mother every day, you know, those types of things. And it's, it's designed to make you feel as though you can never measure up. Narcissistic parents can be emotionally abusive. Now, I would love your opinion, Denise. I, someone recommended this book to me, one of our listeners a while back, and then I heard someone on a podcast mention it a bunch of times. It's called The Fantasy Bond by Dr. Robert Firestone. I've never and heard of it. I'm not sure I agree with everything in the book. I'm still making my way through it. Um, but he bas- the basic premise of his book is that when you're raised with at least one parent who can't love you, truly or unconditionally. The child can't fathom that. They can't understand that their parent doesn't actually love them. They can't face that. So rather than facing that, they blame themselves. It's me. I'm bad. I'm wrong. And then they create this fantasy of they will idolize that parent or put themselves down so much in order to prop up that parent so much. So it's this fantasy, this illusion of a relationship that doesn't even exist. And the premise of the book is that what we do is we take this fantasy and we project it onto our personal relationships that we create in adulthood. And so that many times people can go through their whole life without ever experiencing true authentic love because they're too invested in this fantasy bond. Now, one of the things he says is that parents who can't love aren't aware that they can't love. He calls it hunger. He says that parents have this, these narcissistic parents have this emotional hunger. And he says this hunger is a strong need caused by emotional deprivation in their own childhood. It's a primitive condition of pain and longing, which people often act out in vain and a desperate attempt to fill a void or emptiness. This emptiness is related to the pain of aloneness and separateness and can never be realistically satisfied in an adult relationship. Yet many people refuse to bear the pain and are unwilling to accept the futility of attempting to gratify their primitive dependency needs. So he says, it is virtually impossible to convince, quote-unquote, loving parents that they in fact don't love their children. They feel the sensation of their deep hunger and need in the pit of their stomachs. The feeling of hunger really does not exist. What do you think about that? I think a lot of times a narcissistic parent would overemphasize how much they do love their children. They would say, and the, the examples you gave of look how much I do for you and all of that stuff, but sometimes they will really push, it's all about my children, it's all about my family, almost as a smokescreen to deflect that they're really trying to control the situation. Yeah, yeah. Now he says, and I don't know if I agree with this or not. I don't know. He said, if the concept or illusion of unconditional parental love were withdrawn from the child-rearing scene, it would be far better for all concerned. An honest, unloving mother or, mo- mother or father will do far less damage to his or her child than a role-playing, quote-unquote, loving parent. Isn't that interesting? I think that makes perfect sense, especially since little, small children and even older children have that innate sense of knowing if you're being true and real. They feel it. They haven't shut it off yet. They haven't needed to deflect it yet. So if they're getting a mixed message, that's setting the the precedent for what they'll think love is really supposed to be or what it's supposed to feel like. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's just interesting to think about, you know, those parents who are just so 
awful and abusive and will say, I don't love you, or will just abandon their child. It's so strange to think that that's actually better than the parent pretending. But it makes sense. It's just, it's an interesting concept to play with. He says, um, a rejecting and unloving parent will cause a child pain, but a dishonestly rejecting parent causes the child pain and makes him or her feel crazy. This type of parent causes the child to become unsure of the ability to think and perceive correctly and ultimately causes the son or daughter to develop symptoms of psychological illness. Hiding the truth forces the children to bury their pain, which interferes with the possibility of healing. And then he says many children do not feel love for their parents either, but they have a hard time facing that too. When we come onto the planet, we're very helpless. Those are the people that care for us. There's a lot of, <laughs> I just thought of when uh, uh, geese and ducks will imprint. We, it's our form of imprinting. I think that's fascinating information. Yeah, I do too. It's a, it's a lot to think about. Now, adult children must insist on being a separate person outside the family unit. And a lot of the research shows that this can be really, really, really hard for an adult child to do. I mean, how many times have you seen that with friends or even yourself when you get back with the original family unit and everyone falls back into their labels? Well, yes. And if you have done your work and you try to stay true to who you've become, that's a huge, huge learning curve to go back into the previous role or finding peace within yourself that you can't be who they want you to be anymore. You can't be that person that's a huge, huge stepping stone into your own independence as uh, a separate person and to break those ties of narcissism. Right, because if you become your own independent person, then the whole family unit controlled by that one narcissist is in danger of being exposed and dissolved. And the narcissist does not want that. So you will get a lot of resistance if you try to be your own independent person. And sometimes the best thing to do, either temporarily or permanently, is to just walk away or take a break. And, and I think it's important for people to hear that that's okay. It's better to walk away than to stay in that abusive, unrealistic labeling situation. And there may be more than one narcissist that you're trying to deal with in a family unit. It yes. May not, it, we're, we're discussing the parent, but there may be also siblings. There may be other grandparents. There may be other people that you're trying to... I, I think it's rare to just have one. I think there's... But I, I do think that a, a lot of times it, there will be... Whether it's, it goes back to the nature-nurture, has someone learned those behaviors and seen it as the way to navigate being on the planet? No, you're absolutely right. Many children of narcissists will become narcissists themselves as a defense mechanism. Thinking it's normal. Right, right. Now, let's move on to the narcissist at work. I'm sure we have all had the unfortunate experience of working with a narcissist. If you are working with a narcissist at your place of business, you will see that they tend to use control and intimidation to get what they want. They will praise you only to get something in return. They will often use lies and rumors to get back at you if you disagree with them. They will employ that triangling thing we were talking about with the families, except instead of siblings, they'll put coworkers against each other, or they'll take one coworker and turn him or her into their flying monkeys. Have you heard that expression you know, from Wizard of Oz? Yeah, so narcissists love to have sycophantish followers, just people who are all invested in who they are. It kind of reminds me of um, middle school. Like if you took a microcosm of middle school, you know how there's like that one girl who's the popular one, and if she starts wearing pink sneakers, then all her friends start wearing pink sneakers. Or if she starts carrying a certain type of, pencil pouch then all the other girls have to have that pencil pouch that type of stuff doesn't really end it just morphs and changes 
and goes a little bit underground, but you still have that type of person in the workforce and they always tend to have those followers around them. I've never understood that. Have you, Denise? Like I've never understood following a narcissist. No, but they're often put themselves in a position where they either, it goes back to, they can be a bully, they can be mm -hmm. um, undermining people, they can be causing distrust and uncertainty in the workplace, all of those things. So um, what I'm hearing is, you know, just choose your, choose your fights, choose what you want to. And personally, I think protecting ourselves is a good a good route in that in a work environment because it can often a lot of times will people will leave a work situation because of a narcissist they just can't take it anymore right well i will tell you for me and with dealing with the narcissist at work my best ally was documenting everything right and holding them to all of that that helped a lot so a narcissist at work can steal ideas or clients from you and then deny this or turn it around and make it look like it was your fault. Well, you dropped the ball. You didn't call them back. I just returned the call and then they chose to go with me. Oh, well. As a boss, they will often withhold praise just to kind of keep you on edge or they'll change your schedule just to get under your skin. I had a narcissistic boss, Denise, who was so awful and hard to work with. And I remember... Like if I clocked in at 7.50, she would yell at me for about an hour for trying to steal overtime. But wow. if I, yeah, but if I clocked in at 8.05, she would yell at me for an hour for being late. I mean, it was so bad. <laughs> it was so bad. So I used to just stand outside the office and just wait, wait until the clock hit 8.00. And then I would clock in and come in. <laughs> was she happy with that or he? No, she was never happy with anything. It was so funny. She was, she was an editor of mine. And I would write an article title like, I don't know, the dog was found on the beach. And she would go, this is no good. And she'd change it to, on the beach, a dog was found. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Like, it was so bad, it was kind of funny. Um, not at the time, but in retrospect. I think it's really hard to work with a narcissist because oftentimes what they will do is they will get to know secrets of a lot of people at work. And they will use that secret, those secrets to keep everybody in line. And then when you go to complain about the narcissist at work, the person you complain to isn't going to do a darn thing because they know that narcissist knows this thing about them. So they're very, very clever, and it's, it can be hard to outwit them. But like I said, documenting, uh, recording anything that you can't, like if you have a meeting with them, ask, hey, do you mind if I record this just so I can make sure that I remember all the great things you're going to tell me right now? I mean, you have to tell someone that you're recording them, but... Usually they'll say, yeah, that's fine. But jo documenting everything so that you can have that sense of stability and proof for yourself and others if you need to take it to that level can be really helpful. Save all text messages, save all emails, um, and talk to other coworkers. I had a job, one of my first jobs outside of school was at a really weird charter school. It was just an odd little place to work. And one of the things that the narcissistic boss would do, you know how classrooms have the, the speaker and so it'll say like the front office is calling the classroom? Well, before and after school, she would keep those on all the time so she could hear us talking. That's pretty common in a lot of schools. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Well, she would always tell us like, you're not allowed to talk about salary. And that's how we found out she was doing that because my friend and I were in the class cleaning up after a day and I was just asking her like, hey, how much did you, were you offered? Because she and I were doing basically the same thing. And I got called into the office and she reamed me a new one because I was talking salary. And I remember thinking, how did you know that? It was just the two of us in the classroom. And that's how that came to light. So it was kind of weird. I did not stay there long. Well, that's a blessing. Yes. 
Now, the narcissistic partner can be the most difficult one to handle next to the narcissistic parent. If you are in a relationship with a narcissistic partner, they will often in the beginning engage in what's called love bombing, where they get very intimate with you very quickly. They will prop you up. They will flatter you. They will tell you everything you want to hear. But once you're in, you're in. They enjoy putting you down. They also enjoy putting down your friends and family members. This isn't an effort to isolate you because the narcissist, they don't want you to have allies. They don't want you to have people that you can talk to and process some of the crazy making that they're doing around you. So they're very uh, often covert about the way they will isolate you, but they'll make you doubt your friendships. They'll say, I, I think she's just using you for such and such, or I don't like the way your family treats you. I don't think we should go there for Thanksgiving. They'll just, and it's always in a, in a ploy that they're trying to protect you. But really, it's always about them and their main motive is to isolate you and keep you to themselves so that they can have more control. They will use your vulnerabilities against you. They also love to use circle arguments. And this is super crazy making where they won't ever admit anything. They will just go back to the same point over and over and over. So it's called circle arguing. And they do this as a way to avoid admitting anything to drive you crazy. Um, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. You just, you can't do it. They will project their own faults onto you. That's a really big one, projection. They tend to lie about everything. And I mean, even little things like you might, you might, for example, um, know that they stopped off at this place for lunch because a neighbor told you. And then they come home from the day and you say, what did you do today? And they won't tell you that they stopped off for lunch and ran into the neighbor. It, it makes no sense, but they'll just, they'll just hide things from you. They'll lie about everything. They're rarely faithful. They like to keep secrets. It's another way of controlling the narcissistic partner will also, also attempt to sabotage your efforts to improve yourself. They love to jump over ideas you have for work or hobbies or exercise. If you say, for example, this year I'm going to get into shape. Well, we can't really afford a gym. Do you really have time to work out? Remember that last time you joined a gym and you never went? So any anything that you come home all excited about, they tend to destroy it, really. And again, it's usually in that guise of, I know you best. I'm looking out for you. Poor little wonder. You don't know what's best for you, but I do. They often treat you like a child in the relationship. They will gaslight you. They love to bring up the past. If you made one mistake in the past, they will bring that up again and again and again while ignoring all the mistakes they have made. They are often attracted to empaths and or people from dysfunctional homes. They know that they can use this and these vulnerabilities to attack you and make you doubt yourself. And the narcissistic parent, I'm sorry, the narcissistic partner will often do grandiose gestures in public, but will ignore you or put you down in private. Like I remember I worked with someone who I think was married to a narcissist and at least once a week, he would send a dozen roses to her at work with like this huge over-the-top letter and like she'd read the card to everyone and I just always thought well, that's a little bit much like isn't he going to see her in three hours at home like why send them to work and why every week and but I wasn't going to say anything because what do I know you know maybe it was just a nice thing that he did and then a bunch of other people in the department started talking about it and I thought yeah maybe that is kind of weird and he was always doing stuff like that like every three years they would renew their vows and this huge, big celebration. And whenever we were at work parties, he would say, isn't my wife wonderful? Is, look at her. Isn't she wonderful? And it, it turns out that the whole time he was cheating on her. And oh, it was a mess. Luckily, she got rid of him. But have you ever known people who will do that over-the-top stuff in public? Yes. They can border on cruel behind closed doors. Or they're... In many cases, it seems like it takes so much effort to keep that persona going out in public that there's nothing left in private. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah, and 
really those over-the-top gestures are to make you doubt yourself. Like if you're starting to think, I don't know if this person really loves me. I don't know. Is this really love when they say this or do that? But then when they do this grand gesture, it makes you doubt yourself. Like, oh, no, they do love me. I'm just being too hard on them. And in defense of this, there are actually people who love to do grandiose things because they're coming from such a place of heart. So if you're on the receiving end of big things and things are good on in your private life as well, please don't think we're, we're saying, oh, you get flowers at work. You must be married to a narcissist. <laughs> yes, yes. That's not the case. No, totally not the case. There are people who just love big and they love to just share it with everyone and they will share it with everyone and with you personally. So that's an excellent point. Thank you for pausing to say that. We're talking about those dichotomies, those, you know, just where it's, where if your partner is one way in public and a totally different way at home, that can be a really important sign that you need to look for. Now, you might have a narcissistic friend. I think this is kind of the easiest kind to deal with because you don't have as much invested. Don't you agree? True. Yeah. So the narcissistic friend often plays the victim. They'll always make it about him or her. They have big highs and big lows, lots of drama. And when they need you, they need you now, now, now. There's never a healthy give and take. Like they'll ask for favors. Can you watch my kids? Can you check on my pets? Can you drive me to the airport? But they'll never offer it in return. And they won't even think to. And if you do ask them for a favor, they will have no qualms saying no. They make a lot of promises, but they don't follow through. So I think this is the easiest one to deal with because you don't have to put up with that. There's no ties that bind. You're not relying on them for a paycheck. You haven't procreated with them. You weren't created by them. You know, so when you're dealing with a narcissistic parent or partner or boss, the, the investment, the, the ties that bind are much stronger. But with a friend, it's not, it's not as much. Um, I think I truly had uh, someone that was very, very close to me as a friend for many, many, many years, very dear to my heart. And after a falling out, I never saw the narcissism. I never saw the imbalance. I never saw that it was so one-sided. And when it did end after, um, we're talking decades of friendship, I was so devastated because I hadn't seen it. And it it crushed me because I thought we were very dear and heartfelt friends and it never was. So I think that if you have had someone that has been a dear friend in your life for a long, long time and you're starting to question, you know, is this balance? Am I seeing these things? It, it might, you might need some self-reflection so that you don't, well, so that you don't crash and burn when you start to see these tendencies in someone. But I think yeah. if it's more of a casual friendship or someone that's just come into your life, and as we, my own personal, again, as we evolve and grow and become more confident with who we are, we may be more discerning with the friendships that we want to keep in our lives. Okay, I had a really similar situation to that as well with a friend, and, and here's what I learned from that, and I don't know if this is just me or other empaths, but because I was raised by a narcissistic parent, one of my defense mechanisms was being very self-sufficient. So I very rarely ask for favors. I don't need a lot from people. I'm pretty easy in that regard. And it makes me feel safe to not need things from people. Does that make sense? Yes. So when I was in a relationship with a narcissistic friend, I didn't recognize it because I never asked her for favors. Right. And so I think I think em, like empaths like us can very easily get into a friendship like that and not be aware of it. So I hope you don't judge yourself for that because I, I think it's a it's a defense it's like a reflex defense mechanism for empaths. We are such natural healers and fixers and we want to help people. We want to listen to them. We want to be there for them. And yet the flip side of that, we're often very uncomfortable or at least I am uncomfortable needing people or relying on people. And so the imbalance in a friendship can grow quickly and we won't even recognize it. That's an excellent point. Thank you. So um, 
I have some books and things to recommend before we close out on defining the narcissist, but is there anything you wanted to mention? No, I know I, think, I haven't covered all of it, but I just... Well, you've covered a lot. I think it gives people a really strong base and some valuable information to move forward with. Well, there's a lot of great books out there. I mean, there's so many. So I will post my list on our Facebook page this week. But I wanted to mention a couple that I, I think can be really, really helpful. Uh, one is called Becoming the Narcissist Nightmare by Sharita Arabi. That's a really, she started out just writing a blog about getting through a narcissistic relationship. And the blog became so popular that she turned it into a book. And a lot of people have really enjoyed that. If you have a narcissistic mother, my favorite book is Will I Ever Be Good Enough? Healing Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers by Carol McBride. Excellent tools in there. Really great stories. I also, I got on Audible Mothers Who Can't Love by Susan Forward. I really liked listening to this because it's, it's filled with stories of daughters sharing their experiences of being raised with a narcissistic mother and, um, going through adulthood with that. And each story is narrated by a different actress. So it, it just makes for a, I don't want to say an enjoyable listen because it's, it's a difficult book to read because it'll make a lot of lights go on for you, but it's, it's a good one to get on Audible. There's also Children of the Self-Absorbed by Nina Brown. There's the classic In Sheep's Clothing by Dr. George K. Simon. That title is In Sheep's Clothing, Understanding and Dealing with Manipulative People. Uh, Stop Walking on Eggshells by Paul Mason. And there's um, this great guy, Dr. Les Carter. He has a book called When Pleasing You is Killing Me. But he also has an awesome YouTube channel you guys should check out if you have a narcissist in your life. It's called Surviving Narcissism. And each of his videos is 10, 12 minutes. So they're nice and quick. And they're just filled with awesome tools. He's kind of like, I call him the Dr. Phil of YouTube. <laughs> Do you have any books you wanted to recommend? No, I think the list is very extensive, and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Okay, yeah, because I have others. I just don't want to like read off a whole list for everyone, but it'll be in the show notes, and, and I will post it on Facebook as well. So we hope this has given you a lot to think about. Next time, we're going to be talking about the empath and the narcissist, focusing more on the empath and how they deal with the narcissist in their life. Please don't forget that Denise and I are offering our Mediumship 101 webinar in June. If you want to join us, you can find all information about that wonderful interactive webinar on our websites, samanthafay.com and thegratefulmessenger.com. If you like this episode, if you know someone who may be dealing with a narcissist in their life, please consider hitting the share button on the show and sharing this with a friend. Don't forget that it helps us a lot if you like us, subscribe to us, rate and review us on iTunes, and we are also on Spotify and YouTube. We hope this has been helpful and informative for you all. We thank you so very much for listening. Don't forget, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light.